land of great tradition, there arose a powerful leader who unified his five and a half million people and set out to achieve a renaissance. His Majesty, Abdulaziz Ibn Saud, King of Saudi Arabia. He had faith that somewhere within these far-reaching sands was the key to a richer life for the Saudi Arabs who so long had known scarcity and want. Perhaps this country, so unproductive on the surface, might contain minerals below the surface, including oil. But vast sums would be needed for search and development, and there was no quick way to a realization of this hope. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Politics of the Near and Middle East podcast. I'm your host, Professor Joseph Lombardo. And for the latter half of the semester, we will be exploring the social, political, and economic factors of the region in the 20th century. Subjects range from state formation, gender construction, political violence, and extremism. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll enjoy. Today's podcast is for Friday, May 8th, and it will be used as a makeup day for President's Day earlier in the semester. For this episode, I want to give a little more historical context to oil in the Middle East, its politics, along with a little bit of an economic introduction to the topic as well. We'll also be listening in part to a documentary series on the Saudi experience with oil, which by all accounts is fairly historic given how it sounds but I think it will give some insight into the way in which the United States, as well as Saudi Arabia, likes to portray their own narrative of development. Oil is a commodity like any other. It has, like any other commodity, such as paper or gold, certain properties or values of use to humanity. But as with other now commonly used industrial products, it was the concomitant rise of industrialization throughout the world which vaulted oil to its now revered place above most other commodities in terms of the perception of its value. Oil, as you may know, is simply a liquefied fossil fuel, and it requires an immense amount of human labor in tandem with machines to extract it deep within the Earth's crust. And like other natural resources, oil is subject to an intensive refining process before being put on the international market. Although orthodox or mainstream economics regards the price of a commodity to be based off of fluctuations of supply and demand, it's also important to note that the foundation of value is something created by a combination of human labor and what the natural world provides us. Oil prices have an additional feature. They're set on what is called the futures market, 
which is where traders in a given stock market place bids on the delivery of contracts. Oil is also subject to some aspects of rent as well. While oil can be found in most continents as a liquefied fossil fuel as mentioned, there are certain regions of our planet in which oil can be more abundantly found. Western Canada, the Southwest United States, the Gulf of Mexico, the Northern Caribbean, the Persian Gulf, the Caspian Sea, Eastern Europe, among elsewhere. And not all of what is found in these respective regions are necessarily quality products. So for example, the heavier so-called sour crude found in the Persian Gulf is less expensive than the light Brent crude found in West Texas because of all the impurities found in Saudi and Iranian oil. In fact, Texan oil is so high quality that at one point it had been used as the primary benchmark price to measure all other values of oil in the world. Among the earliest recorded uses of oil in the Middle East dates back to the time of Marco Polo in the mid-13th century in the Caspian Sea, bordering what is today Azerbaijan and Iran. At present, Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf alone produce upwards of one-third of the oil's petroleum market. To quantify that, it's almost 30 million barrels of oil produced per day. Oil thus assumes an almost mythical reputation in the region, and that's largely due in part because for the Gulf, oil reserves are the primary foundation of economic life there. The convergence of post-colonialism and the oil boom in the 1950s also presented for both the Americans and the British the impression that oil was something of an evil talisman for regional and global conflicts. Since the end of World War II, the region has been in a near-constant state of warfare, leading many experts to believe that, indeed, oil can potentially mix with other solutions, and that is, religious fanaticism. In the early 2000s, the rallying cry against the invasion of Iraq was the slogan, No Blood for Oil. And today, the Russian military is all too helpful in propping up the weakened Assad regime, including working its oil rigs and jacks deep into ISIS territory. One of the major themes in the course has been the relationship between the region and Europe and the United States. We saw how exported ideologies of both liberalism as well as socialism were either accepted or in the case of Iran, rejected. But another, more material, objective aspect of these curious exports from the West can also be seen embedded in the development of industry throughout the region. What Americans have also called the quote, the discovery of oil. He winnowed out the wheat by letting the wind blow the chaff away. But crops, judged by modern standards, were pitifully small. And for townspeople and Bedouin alike, life was an endless struggle. None of them knew that this desert, barren of natural resources to the outward eye, 
had been blessed by nature beyond the wildest dreams of those who raided and struggled for life across its sandy, windswept wastes. And then, in this land of great tradition, there arose a powerful leader who unified his five and a half million people and set out to achieve a renaissance. His Majesty, Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud, King of Saudi Arabia. He had faith that somewhere within these far-reaching sands was the key to a richer life for the Saudi Arabs who so long had known scarcity and want. Perhaps this country, so unproductive on the surface, might contain minerals below the surface, including oil. But vast sums would be needed for search and development, and there was no quick way to a realization of this hope. Then, in the early 1930s, an American oil company obtained a concession on Bahrain Island, 25 miles out on the Persian Gulf. The venture was successful, and occasionally there was speculation as to whether even greater opportunities might lie across the green waters of the Gulf in Saudi Arabia. And so, geologists talked about the possibilities, and they saw the low rise along the coast that could mean oil or could mean nothing at all. They debated and debated, and finally recommended that the risk be taken. But whether these unknown sands would justify the outlay of millions of dollars was still a decision that had to be made by the company directors in San Francisco, 11,000 miles away. They knew it would mean sinking into the desert the money of thousands of stockholders in a project that might well end in complete loss. Such decisions are not made lightly, and many an hour of study and debate had occupied many men before the company sent the late Lloyd Hamilton, one of the great figures of Middle Eastern oil, as emissary to Arabia. On May 29, 1933, after weeks of discussions, there was a meeting at Qasim Palace on the outskirts of Jeddah. It was there that Saudi Arab government officials representing His Majesty signed a concession covering roughly 320,000 square miles. This was the starting point of a new American business venture abroad. But ahead, there was a long, long distance to travel, a huge investment, years of effort, and no end of patience and perseverance. Most important of all, the job would require men, hardy men, determined men, Men who were willing to leave families and friends and journey halfway around the world on a quest that might end in failure. Men who could face hardship and monotony and still take it. Men like Paul Strong. Paul Strong had never heard of Saudi Arabia when he was asked back in 1938 if he would like to go there. That answer was easy for him. He would not like to go. For his money, give him the peace and quiet and comfort of the small American town where he'd lived since he finished college just a few years before. The company sought out other men. Sought them where men are always found when the chance of pioneering is offered. Across the breadth and depth of America. On farms. In small towns. In great cities. And each man had his own problems to weigh each his own decision to make, 
before they were being asked to make a life career of oil in Arabia. They weighed and decided, and gradually they began to arrive. Carpenters, machinists, riggers, technicians, drillers, executives too, eager to extend a welcoming hand clasp to the new arrivals. And this is where Edward Said's critique can be felt the most in the modern era. That we in the West look upon a region and only see what is value to our perspective. 200 years ago, it was the allure of biblical Judaism and Christianity. And for the past 80 years, it has been oil. We construct narratives of ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East, not to tell its tale, but to tell our own story. America the virile, the competent, the ingenious, the adventurous. And after all, what would all of these Arabs do without men such as Paul, or cities like San Francisco? It was clear that by the 1970s, the US and the Western Bloc allies were determined to recreate the Saudi economy and the Gulf into an entity of cheap and exportable oil. They had become so reliant on this market that even their own domestic production had fallen short. In the aftermath of the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, Arab members of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, imposed an embargo against the United States in retaliation for the U.S. decision to resupply the Israeli military and to gain leverage in the post-war peace negotiations. Arab OPEC members also extend the embargo to other countries that support Israel, including the Netherlands, Portugal, and South Africa. The embargo banned both petroleum exports to the targeted nations and introduced cuts in oil production. Several years of negotiations between oil producing nations and oil companies had already destabilized a decades old pricing system, which exacerbated the embargo's effects. The efforts of President Richard M. Nixon's administration to end the embargo signaled a complex shift in the global financial power to oil-producing states and triggered a slew of U.S. attempts to address the foreign policy challenges emanating from long-term dependence on foreign oil. By 1973, OPEC had demanded that foreign oil corporations increase prices and cede greater shares of revenue to their local subsidiaries. In April, the Nixon administration had announced a new energy strategy to boost domestic production in order to reduce U.S. vulnerability to oil imports. The onset of embargo contributed to an upward spiral in oil prices with global implications. The price of oil per barrel first doubled, then quadrupled, imposing skyrocketing costs on consumers and structural advantages to the stability of whole national economies. Since the embargo coincided with the devaluation of the dollar, a global recession seemed imminent. U.S. allies in Europe and Japan had stockpiled oil supplies 
thereby secured for themselves a short-term cushion. But the long-term possibility of high oil prices and recession precipitated a rift within the Atlantic Alliance. European nations and Japan found themselves in the uncomfortable position needing U.S. assistance to secure energy sources even as they sought to disassociate themselves from U.S. Middle East policy. The United States, which faced a growing dependence on oil consumption and dwindling domestic reserves, found itself more reliant on oil imported oil than before, having to negotiate an end to the embargo under harsh domestic economic circumstances that served to diminish its international leverage. But to complicate matters, the embargo's organizers linked its end to successful U.S. efforts to bring about peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Partly in response to these developments, on November 7th, the Nixon administration announced Project Independence to promote domestic energy independence. It also engaged in intensive diplomatic efforts among its allies, promoting a consumer's union that would provide strategic depth and a consumer's cartel to control oil pricing. Both of these efforts were only partially successful. President Nixon and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger recognized the constraints inherent in peace talks to end the war that were coupled with negotiations with Arab OPEC members to end the embargo and increase production. But they also recognized the linkage between the issues in the minds of Arab leaders. The Nixon administration began parallel negotiations with key oil producers to end the embargo and with Egypt, Syria, and Israel to arrange an Israeli pullout from the Sinai and Golan Heights. Initial discussions between Kissinger and Arab leaders began in November of 1973 and culminated with the first Egyptian-Israeli disengagement agreement on January 18, 1974. Through a finalized peace deal failed to materialize, the prospect of a negotiated end hostilities between Israel and Syria proved sufficient to convince the relevant parties to lift the embargo in March of 74. But here's the real deal. The embargo laid bare one of the foremost challenges that we've been so far seeing with the U.S. On one hand, it has to be able to defend its ally Israel against hostile Arab neighbors. But on the other hand, it also has to negotiate with OPEC, which is mainly dominated in the Gulf region. So the strains on U.S. bilateral relations with Saudi Arabia revealed the difficulty of reconciling those demands. The U.S. response to the events of 73 and 74 also clarified the need to reconcile U.S. support for Israel to counterbalance Soviet influence in the Arab world with both foreign and domestic economic policies. The full impact of the embargo, including high inflation and stagnation in oil importers, resulted from a complex set of factors beyond the proximate actions taken by the Arab leaders' members of OPEC. 